and welcome to the ICF podcast. My name is Martin Calvert. I'm the marketing director here at ICF Digital and ICF Translate. Today it's a slightly unusual podcast because you've got me and my colleague Luke Kenner, who's market growth manager here at ICS, and we're going to be talking about all things travel, tourism, hospitality ahead of our uh, participation at WTM. So Luke's going to expand on some key questions that I've got set up. Um, but first of all, Luke, thanks for joining on this podcast. Thanks very much, Martin. It's good to be here. So for people that might be not too familiar with um, ICS and what we do, do you want to give a bit of an introduction to who we are as an agency and our interest in travel? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, ICS is um, at its core a content and SEO specialist agency um, and our key focus um, or our key specialities um, usually focus on international markets um, so we're a very multilingual agency um, and we tend usually to work um, in quite highly regulated sectors um, and highly competitive sectors so in terms of how we fit into the sort of travel question um, obviously travel is a very diverse um, business sector um, with lots of different subsectors um, but it's also traditionally a very competitive space um, and given our Sort of expertise um supporting with um, SEO and organic growth um for brands in, in other sectors like this um or even sectors that are more challenging from a sort of technical and regulatory perspective. Um yeah that's kind of where we've we thought that we would be um we're a good fit um for travel and we've had a lot of expertise um working in, in this sector um in the past as well. Yeah plenty of challenges ahead for travel firms of all sizes really as we look to twenty twenty four. Um, when you look at kind of what we do here, I says, what do you what do you like most about it about about your role? I mean, you you focus on market growth, which involves looking at lots of different countries and industries, and you know ways to help clients expand and grow. Like, what's your favourite part of the role? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there are a lot of aspects that I enjoy, um, and yeah, I could probably go into quite a lot of detail and do a full podcast probably on that. Um, but yeah, I think the first thing would be. This, the diversity of, of my own role. Um, so as market growth manager, um, I'm kind of given the opportunity to support new prospective clients, new brands um, that are operating in, you know, different markets, different languages, um, and a variety of different sectors. Um, so every discussion is, is different. Um, discussions aren't always in English. Sometimes I'm speaking to people in Spanish or Portuguese. Um, so it's always quite varied, um, and it gives me a bit of a chance to practice what I studied at university, but also, um, it gives me a chance to be able to discuss all of the different things that we, that we offer at ICS because, you know, we are an SEO agency at our core, um, but that comprises of a lot of different things, um, you know, across on, on-site SEO, technical support, multilingual content, off-site SEO, digital PR, web design, um, translations, you know, so there's always a lot of variety in the conversations that I have. So that's definitely something that I enjoy. Um, and the multilingual aspect of it um, is definitely something that um, that makes life interesting. Um, you're always, you know, speaking with people from around the world. Um, we're very fortunate in, in our offices and in our team to have so many people from different cultures and countries um so yeah by definition it's a very international um area so there's a lot of um 
yeah, new and exciting people that can be met there. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why we're doing this pod, really, um, you know, ahead of WTM, so it stands for World Travel Market, for those unfamiliar. It is one of the biggest events in the travel calendar. It's at the Excel in London, probably one of the biggest events that they hold there. Um, for those unfamiliar, it involves literally, um, I think, five different pavilions for the various continents, and within the continents, you've got the different countries represented, so it's like a microcosm of the world with different... Um, uh, destination marketing bodies represented, hotel groups, OTAs, airlines, pretty much everybody. Um, also, it's probably one of the most enjoyable from the perspective of food and drink with uh, lots of different uh, dishes from around the world represented. Uh, I'm definitely fond of a freebie. Yeah, um, the stands usually have um, a lot to be a lot to be admired. There's definitely a lot of time and energy invested into into the stands. So yeah, looking forward to seeing what what people come up with this year. Yeah, I mean, look, aside from the food and drink, which is, you know, maybe something I shouldn't be quite so excited about, but what are you looking forward to around uh, WTM this year? Um, yeah, so I guess, I mean, it's always an exciting place, and I think you summed it up quite well in terms of how it's formatted, um, because, you know, every, it is split up into like a sort of mini globe. Um, you're kind of walking around and... One minute you're in sort of Latin America, the next minute you're in Asia. There's really a lot of diversity. Um, and I think it's just exciting for us because we are such an internationally and multilingual focused agency. Um, it's just an opportunity, or quite a unique opportunity for us and for me um, to meet with people who you just potentially wouldn't get a chance to meet with um via other means so it really does open up a lot of doors yeah it's good to get like first-hand experience of what people are feeling as well as what they're just um you know saying or talking about you know there's a lot of anxiety in some sections of the travel sector still in a you know post-covid world some people haven't fully rebounded to where they once were other people doing very well and full of optimism so it's good to kind of get a way to you know take the temperature of the industry as well and you know among all this diversity there is you know not to be like horrifically reductive but there is one common factor in almost all travel firms you know whether it's hotels or cruise lines or airlines and the, the principle is you can't sell yesterday's hotel room or yesterday's um, plane ticket today it's kind of gone so that's kind of the the main um the main thing we're picking up, you know, across the year, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of sentiment is represented in WGM this year, because there is that need to, you know, increase passenger numbers, have scalable ways to respond to demand, not push customers away. You know, as as we know, you know, customers are making their own decisions online without ever speaking to a travel agent these days. So it can be quite tricky to, you know, put your best foot forward as a travel brand and meet the needs of multiple audiences and multiple types of customer. When you think of all the many different ways you can split demographics and, you know, types of passenger, it can be difficult to have a consistent message that is, you know, that will resonate with everybody. That might even be an impossible task, but, you know, there's lots of ways to try and, um, you know, get a bigger share of the pie to reduce that anxiety of, uh, you know, planes leaving at 50% capacity or 80% capacity. Um what are some of the biggest challenges, that, and or I guess also opportunities that you've seen in your discussions this year, Luke, around travel or hospitality? What are people saying? 
So I think the opportunities that present themselves to travel brands um, in response, I guess, to, um, you know, COVID and new buyer personas, new sort of generational demographics, um, is that from a Google perspective um, and from a search perspective, there are more tools available um, and Google is to some extent trying to, um, or it says it's trying to modify its um, algorithm and its systems so that, you know, more accurate and useful user data is available. Um, you know, whether that's through the transition um, from Universal Google Analytics to Google Analytics 4, um, where things, where more event-based interactions are being tracked um, to give you a bit more of an accurate feel of, of user behavior on site, um, or whether, you know, it's looking into video content and more multimedia content that helps to establish a bit more trust um, amongst your, amongst people um, coming onto your site. Um, but yeah, I think in on the whole, um, the kind of key point I would say is around um, opportunities in, across content and content marketing um, and how brands position themselves um, both on-site and off-site. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots to talk about here. I mean, as regular listeners to the podcast will probably um, will, will probably gather that I'm pretty cynical when it comes to what Google says and then what Google actually does. Um, so it's worth taking things with a pinch of salt. It's definitely always worth paying attention to what they're actually um, putting on, you know, uh, their own advisory portals and things like this so you can then test against it. But it does feel like um, Google is able to detect and police and reward uh, quality content more than it used to be able to. There's certainly, um, you know, the phrase right for uh, users and not search engine. That's been going around for probably 10 years. But, you know, if we're totally honest, that wasn't really the case in 2015. They weren't really able to detect the best possible content compared to something that was, you know, a little bit keyword stuffed, over-engineered, with people doing various um, weird SEO tricks. Now, you know, refreshingly, it seems that a lot of these tricks have fallen by the wayside and there's a better chance to rank and get traffic and relevant traffic and convert that traffic into paying customers and passengers with just good content that is, you know, written in such a way that it anticipates users' questions, answers them effectively and guides them in a non-obnoxious way towards a purchase, even if that purchase takes, you know, a few different touch points. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, another SEO aspect to, to consider there, um, based on sort of the trend in the Google updates this year, um, is around kind of like core web vitals yeah. and, um, you know, loading speed, mobile usability. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. It's another one where, you know, my suspicion of Google comes into play because they've now talked about how Core Web Vitals is not a ranking factor and how, you know, they've sort of, um, I feel like they've gaslit us a little bit <laughs> because I think they did allude to it being more important than it was. But again, it's never been um, the defining factor, I think, for any client we've worked with. Um, you know, the, the best practice still makes sense because it's about usability, so making sure a site's fast, indexable, it can be found by search engines. It can be ranked. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, as you say, there are. 
there are some kind of almost timeless um, debates and situations um, that, you know, probably don't just permeate travel brands and the travel sector, but also in, in other sectors of a similar nature, um, because it kind of opens up that discussion between, um, you know, particularly in travel, do do travellers stick with what they know? Do they stick with the, um, the the airlines that they know, for example, even if they they are kind of overwhelmed with potentially um, poor user experience or, you know, a booking process, it might be that their actual experience um, or just ease of, you know, ease of knowing who the, that company are um, could sort of outweigh the the possibility of going with a with a smaller brand so i guess the challenge there is um kind of what can those smaller brands do to i guess make people think again on those when yeah, they're yeah. those decisions it's yeah. one of these things where um it comes back to once again how google is trying to think more like a user yeah. and users and customers all of us we are quite uh, prejudiced is the wrong word, but like we're drawn to what we know. That's why you know big brands. And this is an example that we use a lot. If you're searching for a, I don't know, um, a, a, a black office chair, and Amazon comes up, you might be tempted to buy direct from Amazon, not because they are the number one authority in everything to do with black office chairs, but you know it's not going to be terrible, and you know it'll be probably an okay price. Meanwhile, a site called blackofficechairs.com might be second or third, yeah. even though that's everything they do. That's the power of brand. That's kind of why we don't dismiss it. That's why we have our digital PR team to have, you know, brand boosting campaigns because we know that influences how uh, users and customers trust. Um, but because Google is trying to, in a way, mimic what users are doing, that also shapes what um, uh, Google does in terms of uh, rewarding companies through rankings. That's kind of why we see you do. You will see Amazon at the top for some, you know, fairly specific terms. Even though you know they are the ultimate kind of, you know, non-specialist in a way. And that's kind of what we'll see when it comes to different aggregators in particular as well. And it's it's this is a challenge that you know particular hotels, cruise lines, airlines will have. And it'll be some of their frustration because they'll see their affiliate partners who they love because they bring them traffic, um, outranking them. <laughs> but yeah. and, and the frustration will be like for every single booking made on an affiliate site or an aggregator, they've got to pay out some of the the, the revenue. So it's that double-edged sword. And, you know, because you can't, can't live, with, live, live with them, can't live without them. Um, but... I don't think brands themselves should be too put off with this. I don't think they should go head to head and fight their own affiliates and, you know, to compete for the same traffic. That's costly. But what you can try and do is have a mature conversation about where you will focus your SEO and content strategy and PR strategy and lo and localization strategy, let's be honest as well. And then what you can hope for and what you can try and negotiate and persuade your affiliate partners to be doing. So it is a genuine win-win. That's of that's obviously easier said than done. But if you are one of these larger brands and you do have good conversion potential on your own site, you should have some sway there. But it also depends on how motivated internal teams are to do that, you know. And that's again, as we keep saying, one where smaller or medium-sized brands might have more 
more to gain and they might be more incentivized to do something different, do something special. Whereas somebody who's been employed at a very, very large travel firm for 10 years and that travel firm has existed for 50 years, they might be thinking, well, why go the extra mile? So this is an opportunity for smaller companies to think, how can I be creative? How can I use digital? But also the human factor here to get better deals, to divide and conquer, I suppose, with competitors, all that type of stuff. So there's lots in this. It's not just SEO. It's not just content. There's also the the human and business factor. And because we've, I guess we've been doing this for like 20 or something years, we do kind of see <laughs> what's working for people and also what's not working so well. So, you know, we've definitely got opinions to offer, you know, heavily caveated, of course. I think the the human element as well um, and how that kind of influences search behaviours and search data um, kind of, I guess, goes back to the sort of general, um, you know, environment and, and world sort of um, situation. And, you know, from a COVID perspective, there might have been travellers who became disillusioned with certain um, companies or had poor experience with certain companies. Um, and that could have actually instigated a change in behaviour towards considering newer brands um, or different brands um so yeah it, it's not kind of that as martin touched on it's not that you know these factors um should it sort of put off smaller and medium-sized um companies yeah, because there definitely are opportunities there yeah i think that's a really good point so branding isn't just about you know your tv ads and you know what people remember from um, you know, email marketing or whatever. Branding is also about, you know, what you do. That's what, you know, it's what people will remember how you made them feel. That's like that, you know, Maya Angelou quote, you know, people will forget what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing terribly and inappropriately. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of something that does um, linger in the mind. And it's one of these things where there is that legacy of the COVID era where some companies were very good to travellers, allowing them to rebook easily, perhaps giving cash refunds rather than vouchers. Other companies might have been a bit more restrictive or made the process harder, maybe not by design, but maybe just, you know, they weren't able to give the level of customer service that they wanted to at that time. So that might leave a bit of an impression. Um, but also, like, branding is also not just about being great. It's about being understood. So, I mean, one uh, TikTok account that we both enjoy is Ryanair's one, yeah. which is kind of infamously humorous. <laughs> I, and, think and, I think they have nailed it to an extent. Yeah, and it's it's a tricky one because you know, they're they don't need to go for brand awareness. Like pretty much everybody across Europe knows who Ryanair is and probably knows some of the uh, associations with you know being a bit stingy, being a bit mean, but turning that into a positive in a way to by saying that this is the, the you know this is the humor that we draw upon. You know what you're getting. Um, you know this is our brand, and it's a way of you know. Not, I guess the term, the term in theatre, I believe, is called lampshading, and I'm going to explain this terribly as well. I believe that if there's like a, you know, something unusual or unlikely that happens in a play or a movie, it's not unusual for a character to to say up front in in the dialogue, what an amazing coincidence, because then you're actually, you know, it's like putting a lampshade on a light that's that's that's, that's blinding you. The idea is you're addressing what the audience can see, that what the audience already knows. You're not you're not suggesting to the audience that they shouldn't see something as weird or 
different. And that seems to be like what Ryanair are doing. You know, everyone knows, Ryanair knows how they are seen. But by addressing it with humour, they're acknowledging it. They're not trying to say we are the luxury provider of choice and your opinions are wrong. They're not trying to kind of, you know, get people to change their mind there. They're kind of embracing it in a, in a way that seems to be working for them. Yeah, well, I didn't actually know that term, but I feel like it, yeah, it sums it up pretty pretty nicely. I think that's like one of the many things in this podcast I've explained extremely poorly and probably <laughs> amateurishly. Was that, yeah. was that from your years as, a, as an amateur actor? I have no years as an amateur actor. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's definitely lots of different kind of... Um, you know, ways of looking at how branding works and like, you know, it's not necessarily just about being seen as the best. It's about seen as a known quantity because that also is a type of trust. If I know what I'm getting, I'll go for it. You know, if I go to, you know, um, you know, it's like McDonald's. People know what they're going to get from McDonald's. They're not, they're not going to get the finest meal in, in the world, but they'll get something that is probably almost exactly the same as all previous McDonald's meals that they've had before. And sometimes that's what people want. So uncertainty is kind of the enemy of all this stuff. So any kind of uncertainty is, um, particularly in travel, something that causes anxiety. People want to know about punctuality. They want to know about what they can take on board. They want to know what they can expect at the resort. Is it family-friendly or is it kind of for grown-ups? You know, the more brands can address uncertainty in their marketing and in their public image, the more confident um, passengers will be about making a booking but then it comes back to one of the initial points in this discussion, which is the more certainty you give, the more risk the risk you're pushing some other audiences away um, unintentionally. So it's about having that balance of being able to engage multiple audiences at once, but not to the point that you're seen as um, for nobody in particular. It's a really difficult challenge for um, travel brands, but it's some something that you know, some manage to do effectively depending on their marketing mix, you know, their targeting strategy when it comes to advertising and things of that nature. But it all comes down, comes back to bookings, I guess. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, as you say, the, the, there's a kind of like a common theme with across um, the discussion around certainty and, and making customers feel like they can trust you. Um, and I think one of a couple of the sort of points that we've touched on um Across kind of both on and off-site sort of marketing channels is you know how that's conveyed in the content and the messaging. Um, I guess in 2023, there's well not just in 2023, but you know in the past few years, there's definitely been um, a tendency towards um, people engaging more with with video content and things like that. Um, so I guess from an SEO perspective, how kind of useful would you see? Like yeah, I think it's an interesting content. one. Because um, I think it's another case where I believe that Google has sort of backed away a little bit from schema markup, I believe, which used to be, again, something that was leveraged more heavily. Um, but it does seem like there's more ways of interpreting video content. Certainly adding subtitles to video content is essential. Um, and I think all of us are now aware of what attention spans are like. Um, you know, personally, as a bit of a TikTok addict, even at my advanced age, if something is longer than 10 seconds, I'm going to skip it unless it's extremely um, engaging. So that's kind of where short form content. And again, something where some of the larger brands, they're maybe taking more of a, um, 
an insider view than they should. You know, they're a bit more in love with their service offerings and destinations than customers might be. So creating like a 20-minute high-definition video that doesn't necessarily get watched is not a great use of money, and it's a great way to slow down your site as well if you're embedding it. Um, So this is something we see typically on a lot of travel sites, actually. You know, again, coming back to the Core Web Vitals thing, might not be a direct ranking factor, but certainly one great way to slow down your site and make it much more difficult to navigate is to have massive high-definition images. And it's something that travel firms in particular are very tempted to do because, you know, unlike engineering or sewage specialists, they've got really good images that they can draw upon, like nice beaches and hotels and stuff, and it's natural to want to show off. But if it interrupts that user journey, then that's not so good. And it's also worth noting that some of the images, even if they're unique photos, they can end up looking stocky, which is, again, challenging because... You know, you want to demonstrate something with a bit of personality that shows that that isn't just a backdrop. You know, that's something again that smaller firms might be able to pay more attention to. You know, they're able to go the extra mile to think what will really make me stand out. Whereas I think sometimes large firms can treat imagery as just a bit of a wallpaper exercise, whereas it's part of the whole way people interact with the site. You know, and as we've talked about the very, very slim window of opportunity to convert somebody uh, once they're on that site as well. So, yeah, I think definitely using the right imagery in the right way is is, in, is important. Yeah, there's definitely a, a way to use it that's not just for the sake of it because um, it's just the thing that's happening. Like, you, you feel like you need to be doing it because other brands in the sector are and yeah, not yeah. to do all at once. You can be more specific, but also this comes down to another trending topic, which is, you know, user-generated content and AI. So the user-generated content side comes into Google's push for um, experience, expertise, authority, and trust. So you used to be able to call it EAT. Now, I guess we have to call it EAT. Um, But, you know, the experience part of that is um, when people have experience of the service or the topic at hand, so user-generated content plays right into that. So not just reviews, but having you know, photos that have been submitted by previous guests, things of that nature. And it's also worth looking at, looking at from the, the expertise perspective. So the expertise perspective would be um, you know, a travel journalist or perhaps a long-standing concierge who's seen and done everything, having their content and their perspective on the site. So this is something, again, that Google seems to be quite good at detecting and rewarding. You might not agree with it. You might not think this is actually the best content overall. But this seems to be what search engines want. So considering how you can get experience and expertise, those two different things reflected in the on-site content, that should help your SEO. And it also does help you stand apart because, again, it's unique content. It's not just everybody talking about the same aspects of a beach in the Maldives you're talking about a specific experience and a lot of this comes down to how specific can you be without pushing anybody else away so I'd say in travel that's not the hardest thing because you know ultimately people are looking for a nice destination and a relaxing time typically it's probably harder in other sectors where people might be looking for different types of um, experiences or service for example in law or professional services So that's kind of where I think there is some opportunities with what Google is currently doing and prioritizing. And then, as I said, AI, the other side of it, that is the 
it might be able to you might be able to get something that looks semi unique, but it isn't actually true. <laughs> you know, it's 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 not a, a reflection of uh, a lived human experience. So that is in conflict with Google's approach of eat. You know, the expertise experience. It's an aggregation of prior imagery or text. It's not it's not the real human stuff, and it and by its very nature. It could, it could be considered helpful content, like the update we're talking about, if it is extremely targeted and useful. But given that, again, it will be aggregated content that isn't based on a, a single personal perspective, you've got to consider how helpful it can be because the AI, whether it's chat, GPT, or BARD, that, that AI has not been on your airplane, it has not been on your cruise line, it hasn't been a guest at your hotel. So that's kind of where... I would be extremely cautious about AI in this context. Is that kind of fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I do think that across kind of any sort of application of AI, I think caution is always um, the best approach. Um, and I think, you know, I guess looking at it from an SEO perspective, but also a user perspective, again, um, while search engines want to have that unique experience kind of being portrayed by brands where in their content and their marketing you know also as a as a traveler as somebody who's searching um for their next holiday destination or searching for like a nice um cruise experience or airplane experience um you do kind of want to see what other people have to say about it so yeah um and you know as martin said it, it's quite difficult to generate those kind of experiences through um, through AI. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other, the other thing is, unless you want to compete entirely on price, which nobody in travel wants to because, you know, margins are slim enough as it is. And also, bearing in mind, usually when it comes to competing on price, it can only be like one or two winners. Not everybody can be cheapest. So exactly. there's, not, there's not really many rewards for being third cheapest. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, another thing I guess we're going to bring up a lot at World Travel Market is the, the nature of off-site SEO for travel, tourism, hospitality brands. And we've mentioned earlier how important this is to get authority into sites and to direct search engine crawlers to the right categories, to push the right pages, and to have a bit more leverage about what gets surfaced in search results. Um, I mean, one of the most interesting, but also one of the most difficult um, approaches we take here is what we call digital PR. You maybe want to expand on that and how that works in a travel kind of sector uh, arena? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, digital PR, I guess, for well, is essentially the, the kind of earning of links and coverage um, on, I would say, sort of tier one media publications or, you know, the kind of best quality. Um publications in a specific industry um, through the use of kind of more organic, creative and unique content campaigns. Um, so whether that's running surveys, um, whether that's, um, you know, doing some kind of unique research that's relevant to your, you know, your sector or your brand um, that you feel will directly resonate with your target audience, but also maybe engage other new target audiences. Um, there's, it's definitely an interesting and 
organic, more organic way of of generating coverage um, on on online. But also, you know, it has kind of um, byproducts um, through getting coverage um, in in the press and the written press and you know on socials as well. So there's yeah, there's quite a lot that can be achieved through it. But as Martin mentioned, you know, there are it we we are at the kind of mercy of the of the news cycle um and the news tr um trends um so the way that we tend to approach it is very much um to mitigate for for that and to look at it from a holistic um perspective where multiple campaigns at multiple levels of i guess depth um are being run so as to essentially not have to worry about one campaign being mm -hmm. not getting pick up um it's kind of like an always on approach yeah yeah I, I think that's one of the big things we've learned through digital PR which I guess used to just, used to just be called content marketing I guess a few years ago but um yeah it's one of these things where the earning of media coverage is um I think it's even tricky for mainstream brands I, th I think sometimes these big brands can you know um, overestimate how newsworthy their news actually happens to be and what the actual addressable audience of it happens to be. When we talk about digital PR, really usually we're talking about creative campaigns that are less about the brand and more about some kind of campaign aspect which will be of general interest. So as you say, surveys, um, research, snapshot insights, things that will be timely and relevant and fit in with the news agenda, what journalists are looking for. And that's something where we try and again, de-risk things for ourselves, but also for clients by talking directly to journalists and find out what kind of stories have they got coming up, what kind of topics and themes are they leaning into. The ideal is we push it on, maybe not an open door, but definitely an unlocked door, rather than something that is uh, going to get slammed in our face. It's a tricky one because there's all sorts of campaigns that are getting pushed out there every single day. Journalist inboxes are flooded and there's fewer members of, um, you know, journalistic and writing teams at national publications because they've been culled so heavily. So journalists are stressed, under pressure, and in demand in terms of their attention. So we try and make things as easy as possible for them by presenting campaigns and hooks and press releases that are kind of oven-ready, that can be launched into their publication. They will be relevant, and it'll suit them as well because it'll stop... Um, their audience is from scrolling, it'll get engagement for them. So it's a bit of a win-win. The news publication and journalist gets a cool story, um, our client gets coverage and hopefully an SEO-boosting link. And um, for us, we get the satisfaction of you know a creative campaign getting thousands and potentially millions of you know viewers. But it is, it's definitely one of the trickiest things that we do. But um, travel brands just need to think beyond... You know destinations and giveaways and think of you know other themes that they can tap into like aspiration like um luck like um history news um there's so many different things that can unlock coverage but you might need to squint a little to get the connection to the brand but that's again where we have these ideation sessions internally where we try and flush out all the potential good ideas, we'll surface a few mad and bad ideas as well, <laughs> and then strip those out hopefully before settling on something that will be um, impactful in the media. 
But um, yeah, as you, as you say, it's not never just all eggs in one basket for one campaign. It's um, you know, yeah, I uh, think um, multiple. Another way of of I guess mitigating for as you know, as me and Martin have mentioned, there's the approach is very much a creative approach. Another way of kind of trying to mitigate for any any um, you know issues in the news cycle and making sure that we are getting coverage and making it as easy as possible for journalists to cover these stories is through a um, very much a, a creative approach. So creating, you know, bespoke visualizations of data, um, whether that's in like a map format, different sorts of tables, um, different kind of infographics and animations, um, really creating a kind of asset that that can be seen as a, as a valuable source of information yeah, yeah. Um, in that story. So. Whatever will grab attention, whatever will um, help the journalist to tell a story and, yeah, be a linkable asset, that definitely helps. So we've talked about, I guess, off-site SEO, creative campaigns. I think I've been particularly grumpy on this podcast talking about the nature of Google and, you know, some suspicions about what it actually rewards, what it actually pleases. But we've talked about on-site content, talked about the technical aspect of core vitals, how important or otherwise it is these days the user-first thinking that permeates all of this stuff. So, yeah, we've covered a lot. Um, and, again, it's one of these things where we're hoping to um, go into more detail and depth on, um, I was going to say on the day, but WTM is actually a three-day conference, so we'll be burning shoe leather and uh, <laughs> seeing clients and uh, contacts and um, probably some probably actually some people from uh, pre-COVID times as well, actually. This is my first WTM in a few years. So yeah, looking forward to that. But yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Um, certainly we're definitely uh, keen to meet um, at the event, but for any travel brand listening, we're always happy to share ideas and be a sounding board. Mm-hmm.